Welcome to Your Health Guide, your how-to prescription for better health, translating cutting-edge research for your everyday life. Join naturopath and health educator Lawrence Katsaris for practical tips and insights to help you on your wellness journey. Thanks for joining me again on Your Health Guide. I'm Lawrence Katsaris, and this week I've got a real gem for you. We're going to talk about how to diet and lose weight successfully and keep it off. To talk us through this, I've got naturopath, researcher and fellow podcaster Nathan Rose. When Nathan's not digging around in the literature, he spends his time interviewing health researchers to get to the bottom of what's really going on. He then turns this into education for healthcare professionals to help them get better results with you guys. So the guy knows his stuff. Nathan's going to walk us through how our bodies actually have a set point of weight that they like to sit at. So when we lose weight, if we do it incorrectly, our bodies will actually resist this and want to put weight back on. He'll show you how you can recognize if this is happening when you're on a weight loss program and how we actually need to be focusing on dropping that set point to keep that weight off in the long term. So Nathan covers four diet heroes that you can follow to help you lose weight in the short term, but more importantly, that allows your body to become comfortable at that lower weight that will help you lose weight easier and stay there. So we cover topics like low-fat versus low-carbohydrate diets, why particular meals may actually affect weight loss, and the types of foods to be avoiding that could hinder your progress. Basically, Nathan's going to give you the recipe for reducing your food cravings when you're on diets, how to lose weight effectively, and how to keep yourself at that lower weight for the long term. I've been really looking forward to this episode. I'm excited to share it with you, and I hope that it helps you on your weight loss journey. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today, Nathan. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks for the opportunity. So you've been spending the last six months researching weight loss, how the body responds to particular diets, and you've had some fascinating findings. But before we dive into that, I want to just start on something that might be a little bit basic. But when we're talking about losing weight, we're not talking about just losing weight in a short-term perspective, are we? Well, yeah, good question. Uh, yes and no. So obviously, you know, people want to lose weight and they typically want to lose it pretty fast. They've got a, a, a need to do it and we're encouraging that but what we're also looking at is the long term can they keep that six kilos they lost over six weeks off if we check in with them a year later have are they still six kilos lighter or are they back where they were so yes we want short-term weight loss but we want also sustainable weight loss so they're not on this constant yo-yo that you often find yourselves and and patients are up and down and they go on one diet and it works for a while and then they maybe lose motivation um, and a few months later, they're back up to where they were and they might look for the next sort of quick fix and so forth. So there's there's a few factors, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into about why pretty much all these diets essentially fail in the long term. And that's the point. Yeah, it's the long term that's the issue there. So it's that rebound weight gain where we lose it and then it just gradually creeps back on. So why is it? Why does that happen? Yeah, so this thing's been known for a long time, like in the science, and something that's only really come to light, and hopefully with today's podcast, and I'm sure there's others out there, that to better understand how the body works. So uh, what they've discovered is the body actually prefers to have a certain weight that it wants to be at. Uh, this is an unconscious thing, so uh, in, uh, yeah, patients or people often look into the mirror and think, oh, I could be, I want to be... 
five kilos lighter. I want to be a, a dress size or trouser size, you know, smaller, like a 32. I'm currently a 38 uh, trouser size. But unfortunately, our body actually feels better, strangely. For some people, at that higher weight point, they, their body is actually more content at a 38 or a size 16 dress or 110 kilos or whatever. And that's because we've got this concept called the set point where the body, like many other systems in our body, our body is full of all these checks and balances where it's trying to keep an even keel or a status quo with all its physiology. So like our blood sugar, if we have um, a high carbohydrate food, we'll secrete all these hormones like insulin to try and lower our blood sugar to where our body prefers it. Our blood pressure can go up and down, but again, our body acts um, to to keep it in narrow range. So one of the, probably the easiest uh, explanations or metaphors would be to think of it as like um, central heating in our homes. So many of us have central heating where you flick a button and you set your thermostat to say 22 degrees we have at home. And in the winter, when it gets too cold, say it gets down to say 20 degrees, the uh, central heating will kick in and it warms up the home to get it back up to 22. And then come summertime, uh, it gets quite warm, say it gets up to 24, 25 degrees, where the, the um, thermostat is sensing or measuring the temperature and it will uh, make decisions compared to what the ideal temperature should be. So in, as I said, the temperature gets too hot in the room and the aircon kicks on to bring it back to 22. So it's <laughs> a long-winded analogy, but to my point, our brains, our unconscious brains actually have, uh, it's a bit of a technical word, but the, the lipostat, lipo is another word in um, science for fat. So the, our, like our thermostats for temperature th uh, thermometer, we've got like a lipostat in our brain that wants us to be at a certain body fat level. Um, so hang on a second, That's, yeah. that is awesome. So you're saying that there's this lipostat, there's this set point set by our brain, which dictates where our, each of our body weight wants to sit. And I like your analogy, it's nice and easy to understand. And so when my lipostat or my weight set point in my brain says I'm sitting at, you know, 75 kilos, mm -hmm. I try and diet, I lose weight, I get down to 70, I'm really happy, but then my body will want to move me back up to 75. Yeah, correct. So you might, over a month or two, you get down to 73, 72, and you're working really hard. And sometimes it's harder to maintain that. You're dieting, you're exercising. And then, I mean, there are lifestyle things that come into play. You might go on a holiday, etc. But sooner or later, and I'm sure many listeners have found this, sooner or later, it's you know, like history repeats, you're back to that 75. And that's where your body wants it to be. So in... Um, and so your body can go both ways, interestingly. They've done some curious studies, which we can maybe get into, but if you uh, um, underfeed yourself or have, you know, go on a diet, your, your body basically, they call it defense of body weight. It defends where it wants to be, just like the um, heater kicks in when, when it gets too low. When your body weight gets too low, your body will kick in these programs, both um, psychological or behavior. You become really like obsessive about food and you can't stop thinking about food. You know you should be dieting, but that all of a sudden that cookie that you passed at the, the bakery this morning just looks even better than it it's used to. irresistible. Yeah, yeah. And you're just starting to lose that will to exercise as much as you, you had been. It's all getting a bit hard and tiresome. And that's not just a lack of willpower. Uh, a lot of it is actually your body is um, basically screaming at you to 
hey, I need to eat more food here because my I'm sensing my fat stores are getting a bit too low for my liking. So it's just it is literally defending itself because, like you're saying, it's a it's a regulatory mechanism to keep us in what it thinks is healthy. So our body weight starts to drop and our brain starts screaming out saying, hang on, you're moving into unhealthy territory because it's got this set point of where we should be sitting to be healthy. So before we kind of continue further down that path, I've got two really burning questions that I'm sure all of the listeners are thinking of as well is what sets that set point? And are we all doomed and gloomed here? Like I've just, am I, have I just got a, a weight set point and can I change that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one that I think the researchers are continually looking at. So um, the first question, uh, how is it set? So I'll just go back to this, um, the feedback, like, as I said, the, you, you, your room is measuring your temperature. Your um, brain is measuring your fat stores. And obviously, you, know, you don't get calipers and, um, you know, pinch your, your, your stomach or look in the mirror. This is um, unconsciously, but there's hormones going on in, in this um, scenario where our fat cells actually, many people think they're sort of, you know, this disgusting and, you know, just passive type of um tissue like you know excess fat but fat cells actually do um, send out messages to the rest of the body and the main one you may have or listeners may have heard of is leptin so this is a hormone that's been relatively recently identified that basically it's sort of like the volume of your, your stereo like the um, if you've got small fat cells you don't make much leptin if you've got large fat cells you make a lot of leptin so it's proportional to how big your fat cells are filled up uh, and what happens is your body is constantly trying to listen to this leptin, and if it becomes too quiet, like the fat cells are too small, they're not making enough leptin, that's like an alarm to the brain to say, we're starving here. So it's a bit of a evolutionary discussion, if you want, where throughout history, uh, starvation was much more of a threat than not being able to find uh, near a 7-Eleven for a big Slurpee or something. It, it was hard to get food and calories. And we built, and through evolution, there were systems that have been developed to try and alert our body that um, things are getting scarce. We need to try and consume more calories because, again, previously, uh, a lack of calories meant a lack of reproductivity or you couldn't you know, mate. Um, and that's ultimately, if you follow evolution, the, 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 the end game, I suppose. So if you were too thin, you couldn't produce. So you need that alarm bells, that feedback to um, tell your body to to stock up on fuel more to be able to reproduce. So so that's what determines your set point to degree, whether your body is feeling comfortable with its sort of current state. Um, and listeners may be wondering then, well, what about people who are overweight? Like, Yeah, why is the body yeah. feeling comfortable with that? Like how come it progressed itself to feel more yes. and more comfortable at a larger weight? So, yeah, that's the, that's the really fascinating thing. So people who are overweight... Um, what they've found is even when they go on diets, even though they might diet down to a healthy weight, their brain is still perceiving their body as it's in starvation mode and that's a threat to survival and they want to put that weight back on. So uh, obviously we've become more and more overweight as a nation and as a, essentially across the world over the past 30 years. So something shifted, like we weren't all obese previously. Our set points were typically lower than what they are now. So the set points aren't concrete determined they do seem to sort of shift and move up and move down but unfortunately here in australia and everywhere else in the world or at least in industrialized countries the the set points are shifting up so these people are at the you know the 
um, at the size 16 or they're at 120 kilos. And if they try and lose weight, they will maybe get down to 115 or 110, but it becomes more and more difficult because their body thinks that they're starving and they're going to try and defend that set point. Now, that's that's really great. That gives us a really good understanding of it. And I'm going to steal a little bit of our punchline for later because I know that we're going to get to how you can actually decrease that set yeah. point. So not all is lost. I just wanted to recap on some of the things that you said, though, and we can explore this in a little bit more before we get to that. You're saying that you've got this hormone leptin that's released from your fat cells and that'll then help communicate with your body and when you have too low a leptin, the body, the brain will start to freak out because it starts to think, hey, I don't have enough fat, it's going to challenge my reproductivity, I better get some more food. Correct. Yeah. You did just say in there about the size of your fat cells. I just wanted to clarify that. For, yeah. you know, if they're small or large fat cells, are you talking about actual amount of fat mass or this is different, isn't it? Yeah, so this is um, everybody has uh, fat, uh, cells or fat cells and, you know, some jam a lot more fat in there than others. So fat cells are typically the, the container and, and fat's actually a really, it's a pretty uh, nifty uh, molecule because you can pack a lot of energy into a, a fat molecule. So we could, you know, store a lot of weight, but unfortunately um, this is all excess storage that gets uh, put on in places, which, you know, go, goes on different places, in different proportions, different people, but essentially it's our storage organ um, it tries to compact it as efficiently as possible but still um, can become not only ungainly and we probably should touch on this like this is not just a cosmetic issue um, having excess fat mass is uh, detrimental to your health sooner or later as your fat mass creeps up your risk for all sorts of diseases whether it's cardiovascular disease um, cancers neurological disease like um, you know things like alzheimer's or parkinson's disease those sort of brain brain type of conditions the risk is proportional to how much excess fat mass you have so that's the reason why i'm pretty passionate about trying to uh, help people lose weight yes it's good to feel leaner and lighter and um, fit into those clothes but they're the long game the end game as well is like long-term health and and wellness so uh, as i said yeah to recap yeah there's certainly this is fat mass is synonymous with just yeah, the excess tissue you're carrying. So amount of when I'm feeling like I'm carrying extra kilos and I've got that extra fat mass, I've got more of those fat cells, and those fat cells can have more fat, more fat packed in, packed them. in them. Yeah, um, yep. but just the same as if I am carrying a little bit of extra fat mass, but the fat cells I've got could be actually fatter as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can pack more in there, and they start to stretch. And yeah, cool, cool, cool. Where well, you were talking about two factors that can actually defend the set point. So you've mentioned that. Yes, the set point can change up and then we can change the set point down and we'll get into that. You've talked about what it is that kind of influences that set point. But when we start to see in that instance where we're losing weight and then that set point kicks in and tries to raise us back up to the weight that it thinks we should be, you mentioned that psychological factors and behavioural factors can impact that. So we'll start to think more about food, we'll start to you know, crave more foods and just get hungrier. What was the other factor that can also defend that set? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So, yeah, two real things. So, um, so to, to to look at weight, our, our weight is it's as boring as it sounds. Um, the old message of energy in versus energy out. So, how many calories you consume versus how many uh, calories you burn during the day. So that was the the old message. Um, you know, life being it, normal on the couch and all that sort of stuff, which is great. But a lot of that was sort of targeted at conscious um, control of, like you have to 
eat fewer calories and eat a salary stick and try and run a marathon every day. Whilst that can be helpful, we know it's hard to sustain. And the reason is because the body's the brain doesn't really like that, it wants to resist that. So to the set point, what happens is when we say we deviate from the set point, say we've lost the weight, we've dropped five kilos, two things happen. Um, typically your hunger goes through the roof. The two, th- well, basically it, it, it manipulates those two variables, your energy in and your energy out. So your energy in is essentially everything you eat. So all of a sudden, as I said, like the, the apple's no longer appealing, but the apple cake is really, really tempting. Your hunger can change dramatically and cravings for particularly energy-dense food to get that, those calories back in. The other side of the equation is the energy out. So we may mostly think of energy outs when I go and run on the treadmill. We can watch the calories clock up as I, as I do 5Ks walking or running or whatever. You might burn, I don't know, 100 or 300 calories. That's great. But... Really, our body's constantly burning calories, and the, the most calories we burn is typically just through normal living, like sitting, talking here, what we call our metabolic rate. People are probably familiar with that. It's how many calories we burn at rest. So our, our brain can actually, if the set point deviates, or if the set point, your weight uh, moves away from the set point, i.e. you lose weight, your subconscious brain says, I don't like that, I'm going to basically try and balance out like an accountant the the you know the income and the expenditure i'm going to balance this out by dialing back your metabolism so your metabolic rate will actually slow right down even just resting you burn fewer calories and also your actual inclination to do activity and exercise i'm sure people have found this one if they um you know haven't eaten much they don't really feel like moving as much as if they're energized in a sense so the body will essentially manipulate that despite your best intentions. Um, so despite you counting your calories and going to the gym, there's always this underwhelming, insidious, um, for a good reason, evolutionary, to, to get you to basically eat more and, and move less, which is the exact opposite of what the mantra what is. To, yeah, Because your, your brain is saying, we've got to get you back to the set point. Yes. That's where you're healthy. That's where you need to be. Yeah. So it's either going to limit your intake of food or it's going to tell you to eat more food depending yes. on where you sit yeah. relative to your set point and it's going to tell you to move more or move less. Correct. So this is where things get real and I think this is where people start to struggle in their lives with the diet because you've touched on this already. I'm dieting and then I don't feel like I've got the ex- the energy to go and exercise or I'm just blatantly starving and I can't stop thinking about the food that I'm apparently not allowed to be eating. Yes. So to dive into each of these, let's start to talk about that energy intake. How does that, like there's studies demonstrating how this will affect your psych, right? This will affect your hunger cravings and how you behave. Yes. Do you want to explain some of those? Yeah, us? yeah. So the, probably the most, I'd say, infamous study, um, which I'm sure would not be approved in this day and age for good reason, but there's a, a reasonable historical context to this. So it's known as the Minnesota Starvation Study Experiment. This was done back in um, during World War II in America. So the, the, the back story is that Americans um, in war and conflict, there was really con- and genuine concerns about food shortage because of the rationing and so forth. Um, and the, the government, the nation was concerned. So they wanted to see essentially how people... Uh, adjusted to being on rations so they got some volunteers or basically some i think they were mormon they were um, conscientious objectors of the war they didn't want to you know be involved in conflict and violence but they wanted to help the nation so uh, they volunteered to go on 
basically half the food intake that they normally had. So they were fit, young, active men, and they were actually eating around about 3,000 calories a day, which is quite quite large, but because they were active, um, they were weight-stable. They were quite lean, but they were, their, their body weight wasn't a, uh, hasn't changed much. So what they wanted to see was how would they go with a six-month uh, reduction in their calories, essentially eating half the amount of calories they normally would. So as you'd expect, they went on to it, and as you'd expect, they, they lost a lot of weight pretty rapidly. Their fat mass declined. Their muscle mass declined a lot, so they're losing fat and muscle, um, which was what the researchers were expecting. They could measure their resting metabolic rate, so how many calories they're burning at rest, and that plummeted as well. But what was really fascinating, and I think the um, main author wrote two 1,300-page volume novels about this, was the the psychological changes that they witnessed in these these um, volunteers. So these men um, literally became obsessed about food, so way greater than using Instagram photos these days showing what you <laughs> had for breakfast. Um, they were constantly thinking about food. So the, the tales that the author um, recounts are like that. So they'd stay up all night just discussing um, recipes. They would get the, the, the uh, magazines of the day, like the Woman's Weekly, and be cutting out all the recipe books and collecting them. They were actually hoarding uh, utensils and pot, pots and pans, um, wow. <laughs> and several of them uh, made the, the, the plan that as soon as this um, experiment's over, that they're going to open up a restaurant and become chefs. So they were constantly thinking about food, um, they were given those small rations and they'd try and make that food stretch. They'd, they'd water it down. They'd try and add spices, whatever they get their hands on. But they were – it was under controlled environment, so they were completely rationed. But um, I think a couple got kicked out because they broke out of the camp and went down to the local um, town and stole some bread rolls <laughs> because they were so starving. But you can see that these men previously were not preoccupied with food, but they became obsessed about it and um, they didn't really want to do any activity. They – um, almost discontinued their relations with their girlfriends and things. They had no interest in interacting with people. So, as I said, their, their brain had changed so much that they were constantly thinking about food. And just another one, there was a, another study, which you can get to, where they, um, were start, uh, they were putting people on a low-calorie diet and looking at their effects. And um, those researchers reported that even people dreamt about food, like in their dreams, it was all about food. So you can see, probably from, as I said, like this... Um, distant past, how food was so important, and it gets right into our psyche and almost subconscious. It's a biological need, and yeah. it keeps us on track. And so, when we're dieting, I mean, I think that's an extreme example, but I'm sure everyone can relate to that to some degree. When we're dieting, you start to just, you'll get hungry, and that tends to be, perhaps for a lot of us, where it can be the breaking point for it. Is it's just too hard to stay on that diet because we're getting too hungry, and the food that we are not allowed to eat just looks too damn good Absolutely. and so we're going to eat that cake or we're going to crave those carbohydrates or we're going to have that blowout meal whatever it might be and the body's doing that because it's like your brain's starting to tell you to crave those foods because it's trying to bump your set point back up yeah you're yeah. trying to bump your weight yeah. back up to that set point it's like um i've heard the analogy it's like telling someone to drink half the amount of water they should a day like you're gonna be thirsty and you're eventually gonna you're gonna crave your um, need for, for water and, and drink because the body's just craving out for it. Same sort of thing with food. If you get so far away from your normal intake, the body will urge you and do everything it can to make you eat again. Yeah, that's a cool comparison because you're saying that they're equally as important to us, Yeah, hydration and food. So the body will change our 
our hunger patterns and our thought patterns based on getting that food. And then the other thing you're saying is the body will change the energy expenditure. It'll change that metabolic rate or it'll change how much energy we're burning. So if we do stick it out and we deprive ourselves of that food, it'll then start to what stop spending less. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good, good question, good point. So they found like you exercise, you say you used to, as I mentioned before, you hop on the treadmill and you run for five kilometres and historically you burnt 300 calories. The body is trying to conserve every calorie it has. So you could go for a run and you don't know it obviously, but your body might actually only spend 200 calories burning that food. It becomes so efficient at muscle contraction or moving that it, um, that in an attempt to conserve all the energy that you do have, the remaining energy you do have. So you're not getting as much value and benefit from the exercise you're doing if your body's starving. Yeah, yeah, that law of diminishing returns. Uh, the further away you go and the harder you get, um, the less return on investment you're going to get from your exercise. Right, okay. So hey, so what's the suggestion? Like, I mean, we, we know that we need to be exercising. Yeah, so yeah. So how does that work? Yeah, so um, clearly, like, exercise is healthy and everybody should be doing it. Um, and regardless if you lose weight or not. but So I think it comes to the, the bigger point, which we've been really digging into the research trying to find is, uh, and people, um, I should say, people do lose weight and can keep it off and feel fine, um, but it seems to be the exception rather than the rule because most studies show that 80%, 90% of people put the weight back on. So hang on, on that though, I think that's an interesting point, is that if you're feeling hungry, if you're feeling tired, your body's trying to defend its set point. On that diet essentially yeah to a degree like i mean everyone's gonna be tired and hungry now and then a little bit of hunger periodically between meals is pretty normal but if you're constantly hungry and 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 the researchers there's hormones you can measure coming from your stomach can send signals to the brain to say i'm my stomach's empty i want to eat when you diet no surprise um those signals those that message is louder and louder to the brain so the, the trick, though, there are indications that, the, yeah, so for weight loss, um, the goal is to try and find interventions or strategies that actually not just lower your body weight, but actually bring that set point back down to where you want it to be. So you want to be a, a 70 kilo, and let's try and make your brain, not trick your brain, but allow your brain to come back down to feel like 70 kilos is where it wants to sit. Okay, that's huge. So you're saying that when we're losing, when we're trying to lose weight, really what I should be trying to do is lower my set point, change that lipostat, that sort of thermostat for yeah, my weight, yeah. get that down to saying, hey, you, you should be five or 10 kilograms lighter, then my body's going to work alongside what I'm trying to do with my diet. So not just try and get off the weight and then try and be disciplined to keep it off. It's get my brain to want to lose that weight as well. Yeah, yeah. So maybe with the um, air conditioning, like it's too hot in the house, rather than open the windows, um, turn on the fan. How about you walk to the, if you could, it would be nice if it was simple as that, but walk to the, the thermostat and, and dial it down to 20, 22 rather than 24. So we, we create that reference point the body's happy with rather than trying to force it into something it's not. I wish there was a magic pill and I'd, I'd, I'd go 50-50 with you with the profits because <laughs> we, we could retire. Um, but there are some strategies. So we've been hunting around and looking for little wins where there's, you know, we look at the, the research studies and yes, we can lose weight easily by cutting calories, but we're looking for evidence that the people actually feel comfortable in that new weight zone. So... 
yes, they've lost weight, but what's your hunger like? Oh, that's pretty good. Um, I feel fine. What's If they measure their basal metabolic rate, is that unchanged? Um, and we're starting to find out a few things that can help lower the set point. Or the other way is where they just, um, you look at their food intake, they've lost weight and they've just naturally ate fewer calories. So they might be, before they started, they're eating say 2000 calories. They give them X intervention, do this, this and this. We'll check in with you later on. They check in their say five kilos lighter um, and oh, wow, I just checked my food diaries or whatever. And you know what, I'm actually eating only 1700 calories and I don't feel, you know, um, distressed about it my, my body's comfortable with that so yeah to to summarize we want to obviously get weight loss but we want some evidence that the body is not so hungry or the the metabolic rate is still maintained it's getting that unconscious allowance for the body to consume less yes and without the body fighting against itself in Perfect. doing that yeah okay yeah. nicely so one thing before we dive into that because i'm sure everyone's really keen to hear okay how do you actually do that this isn't new stuff necessarily. Like this isn't one or two researchers or papers or studies showing this. Like this has kind of been around for a little while, yeah, and there's a, yeah. a decent body of re- research showing that this is actually what happens with the, when we put on weight or how we successfully lose weight. Right? Yes. Yeah. There's been it's been known for about sixty years in science about this set point, um, and there's been sort of experiments over the journey. Um, inadvertently sometimes, and that's what often happens in science, as a, what we call it, you know, a serendipitous discovery. They did something, oh, by the way, they lost weight and they felt fine. So there's little hints along the way. Um, you know, and recently they've got the tools now to start to um, assess this more. So there's a growing body of evidence to show or there are some important factors that are also, you know, achievable as well. It's no point um, having some great system that works well in a, in a, a research lab where everyone's controlled sitting and they get all the meals every day, but things that people can actually do in their, the real world. Like your Minnesota experiment where <laughs> people are going to break out, like that's all well and good. Yeah, yeah, people, exactly. We live in a free world and so people are going to, you know, break it when they need or whatever. Yeah, or it's, you know, achievable, like exercising for five hours a day is probably not achievable for most people. Yeah, for sure. So what is it that does help to reduce the set point? Where do we start with All right, this? yeah, so... That's a good question. So um, in no particular order, yeah, first of all, we want to eat less um, to create this you know, negative calorie balance, just like our, you know, our budget. We want to save money. Um, we've got to spend less. So it's sort of the opposite. If we want to um, lose our fat, we've got to spend more energy or, or take less in. So one simple one, probably the easiest one to start with, and I'll, I'll just say from the – it's sort of like um, – they all add up. It's all cumulative. Like, there's not going to be a single factor that's going to be the, the one thing you should focus on. There never is, is there? No. Well, <laughs> in the popular diet books, there are. There's always true. true there's always true. heroes and villains. Um, there's no standard heroes and villains, but there's a there's a few strong ones. So, hero number one is protein. So protein, as we know, our food is made up of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, and studies show. Uh, if you have enough protein in your diet, and they usually look at percentage of your total energy, so about 30% of your energy, which equates to essentially having a protein-rich uh, food source with every meal, um, you know, meats and eggs, um, nuts and seeds, maybe for vegetarians, etc. Soy. Soy. If you increase your protein intake um, and then tell people to eat more protein... And if you check in with them later on, they'll naturally 
if you did a tally up of their calorie intake, they'll naturally eat fewer calories in total for the day. Even though they're eating more protein, essentially, unconsciously, they will eat less carbohydrates and less fats and hence, you know, change that energy balance equation. So they'll consume less because protein's more filling. Yeah, protein's more filling. Those signals that go to the brain from the gut, um, say, sort of your, your hearing, your brain's hearing those, those messages easier so you don't have to turn the volume up like I'm really, I'm full, I'm full, I'm full. It's just a little whisper, I'm full from the, from the stomach. It's like, okay, my, my body's happy with that that meal which is not necessarily most people will find if they have a protein rich meal they'll feel fuller but even the sheer presence of protein in the stomach it will start to send those signals to yeah the brain as well, isn't it so yeah. even if you're eating it and you're not necessarily feeling like oh i'm so full just the by eating protein itself will actually send those signals to the brain so protein rich meal meat nuts eggs fish soy uh, most people are probably fairly familiar with where they can get protein sources. You're saying 30% of the total energy. Now, two questions is, does that look like a particular portions per meals as an easy way to put that together? Or how do you recommend that people can kind of keep track of that? Are you using like, you know, food tracking apps or whatever else? Yeah, um, personally, I don't. But that's just, yeah, me, I'm probably <laughs> lazier. And for me, maybe I've been doing it for so long, like I got a reasonable guesstimate of how much protein. So typically for myself, I just try and ensure that each meal is you basically start with a, a piece of protein and, and build your meal from that. And then you can add your fats and carbohydrates. But people can use trackers. They're really good. Um, they're very popular. Um, the accuracy is hit or miss, but I think part of it's also just the accountability, like the fact you're doing it. You're, um, and as long as you're using the same device as well or system like don't just go from my fitness pal to whatever the new next one is from google or something so my fitness pal is an app like a really yes. popular food yeah. tracking yeah. app for those that aren't aware yeah and that's um free oh you can get a premium version but the free one usually does enough uh everything you need so um those you know you can punch in i had like a, a piece of steak and it will if you if you know the weight of the steak like 250 grams it'll say that's 42 grams of protein now there's a rough kind of calculation that you're looking at. It's around 20 grams of protein for a meal is kind of what you're, you're happy with. Yeah, I think minimum 20 probably. And uh, obviously it depends on your size and muscle mass. So maybe for a, you know, a more solid male, it's probably more like 40 grams of protein or about 200 grams per day, 150, 200 grams. Females, it's obviously less than that. So at least 20 grams per meal and probably at an absolute minimum, um, females and would benefit from about 80 80 to 100 grams of protein a day. Okay, cool. And um, when you're saying like a piece, for those people who aren't necessarily yes. tracking the weight of it, like what's a piece of protein look like in a meal? Yeah, so one one system that um, works quite well because you've always got it is a, a, the palm method or portion that um, if the protein source like a piece of meat or chicken or fish is about the size of your, your palm and say the thickness of say a sandwich, um, it's a reasonable sort of... Um, serving of protein is going to get at least 20, probably 30 grams of protein. So sorry, the size of your palms? So yeah, so from the base of your fingers, so not the, the whole hand. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably what I do mostly <laughs> and some more, but um, it's not about me. It's about um, but about the, the, the size of your palms, say, from the, the base of your fingers to the um, to your wrist. So height and width and thickness of the palm as well? Yeah, can be a yeah. Bit so maybe think of a nice donut, but turn that into a steak. Okay, <laughs> all right, nice sort of I feel it, kind of like a classic yeah, I feel it size. Yeah, yeah. And you said around about 80 grams of protein minimum for a woman a day? Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. so your protein needs are obviously dependent on how much muscle mass you're carrying. So 
men um, typically have more muscle mass. So you probably maybe at least 120, as I said, sometimes 150. I know when it gets into more like bodybuilding and stuff, they're usually around about 200. But, you know, more is not always better. There's a, there's a, I think there's a ceiling. Like you probably, there's no extra benefit of having 40% or 50% of your, your diet as protein. About 30 would be, 30%, which is around, as I said, somewhere between... 80 to 150, depending on your so size. That's a real, that's, I'm just doing some maths in yeah, my head at the moment. That's around about the calculations of what they'll often say of, you know, like if you're talking for her, around about 1.5 grams of protein yeah, per that's kilo another, of body that's weight. That's another easy way of doing it, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, okay, cool. And about the 1.5 to 2 grams for, for him Correct. Per, yep. per kilo of body weight. Okay, cool. So first hero, first thing we want to be doing is making sure you've got enough protein. We've given some really simple numbers that you can be looking at. You're essentially looking at around 30% of your diet consisting from protein, and that's really important because it just makes you feel fuller, sends those signals to the brain. The brain's happy with where the amount of calories and the amount of food it's getting, so it doesn't start to cry out, hey, we need more food, and that will then allow you to get to the what the goal is in terms of unconsciously eating less yeah correct. so eat some protein next thing that all we're right be next at. one while we're still on the the macronutrients and diet um is restricting this is maybe contentious in this day and age but restricting either our fat intake or our carbohydrate intake so, whoa whoa <laughs> hang on so i mean low carb is pretty popular it but is. Uh, you're saying you could do low carb or you could do low fat correct okay, okay. tell us more <laughs> All right, um, I might just back up a little bit and talk about um, this set point. One thing that's been found to increase the set point is basically all this processed food that's available today, what, what they've dubbed as hyperpalatable foods. So um, super tasty stuff. Super tasty stuff, which is loaded with sugar or starches, but also fat and salt, um, really calorie, calorie dense as well. So I think of, you know, chocolate bars, donuts, and also savoury things like pizza um, and then muffins, all those sort of things, that what they've found is, um, and there's a bit of an evolutionary theory, these are a huge sort of caloric windfall for our brains. Remember how, unfortunately, our brains are still dated and they, all they really care about is getting enough calories in. And in nature, it was pretty hard to come across calories. So if you come across it and there's there's tales of all traditional cultures, they absolutely gorge themselves when they can. Um, on they can, the Hadza tribe in um, South Africa, oh, sorry, North Africa. North Africa and North Tanzania. Yeah, yeah, Tanzania will can literally drink one litre of honey um, in one sitting. That's it's, impressive. <laughs> I know, and they're, and they're super lean. Um, but they don't do it every day. But my point is our brains are hardwired to seek out these calories. And what happens if we are these calorie-dense things, these really super delicious things, and what happens if we do this? Um, our, there's a view that our brain thinks, well, that's really good. I've just cashed in all these calories here. Let's um, expand our fat mass so we can do that over and over again. So we're, we're stockpiling calories here because we're waiting for that rainy day that never comes in today's society. Mm. So hyperpalatable foods that have been shown to jack up your set point to allow you to store all these foods. So... What is it about hyperpalatable foods? You want to obviously eliminate all these sort of processed and quote unquote modern foods. But interestingly, and I'm finally getting to your point here, is one thing that the brain really cashes in on is the combination of carbohydrates and and fats, um, like so when cookies you put, and yeah, yeah. So when you put carbohydrates and fat together in a food, so 
yeah, I interrupted you, sorry, cookies. I mean, this is... Pastries, and yeah. Pastries, and as you're saying, even your pizza, yep, for instance. Yep. Like, that's why... So some of the, it, our body goes, it lights up and thinks, we've just hit jackpot. Correct. Like we've got a huge amount of calorie density. This stuff is super tasty, but we can put it away to save it for, as you say, the rainy day, yeah. which unfortunately in 2018 never really comes. Correct. So the, the, the rationale is, well... Let's just half that that you know equation. Take away one or the other, so you can go low carb and take away the starches or the sugars, or you can go actually low fat, which is sounding like old nineteen eighty advice, um, but that works just as well. So you're removing that sort of what they call hedonic or that pleasure eating, that tends to, um, as I said, remove away that sort of really um, tasty eating by taking away one of those two elements, fats or carbohydrates. Um, you still get enough food in, you get enough protein in, and you can lose weight. So let me go into the, the low fat versus um, well, low bef- carb. <laughs> before we do that, I think it's important to probably just reiterate here because something you said just made it really clear to me is that we were just, we've been talking about the set point. And so even though I'm going to be eating more, and we've been talking a lot about how the body will defend its body weight if the weight is too low. It'll bring it back up to the set point. Yes. But if I'm going to be eating excessively, sometimes it will bring it back down to that <laughs> set point. But because of the palatability, because of how tasty this stuff yes. is, because of how much it speaks to our body and says, hey, we've hit jackpot, and that is the combo of fat and carbs, that overrides the system. So yes. even though we might start to not really be hungry, the fat and carb tells our brain, who cares, put it away, yeah. cash it away for later. Yeah, exactly. And I'll just point out, yeah, you, one thing I didn't mention and you just touched upon there is our body does defend typically um, overeating and, and makes you do the opposite. If you eat too much and put on fat, the body should kick in and, and make you burn it all up and not be hungry for a period. And some people do that much better than others and we all know those people that you're probably despised <laughs> on some level that can eat what they want and get away with. Even in this modern world, they stay really lean um, I think genetics has a lot to do with it, but you know they defend their set point on the upward as well, really well. Unfortunately, as their people are overweight, their the whole system's moved up. So yes, to your question, yeah, the, the fat and carbohydrate combination really tell the the, the um, brain this is literally Christmas dinner um, every every day, every night. So and, cashing on it, yeah. And on that, the some of the time when people will moderate their intake of food in the studies where they'll show it is if they keep the palatability low. So if they're eating a relatively bland diet, that's then when someone will moderate their food intake far better because, as you're saying, it's not hitting that hedonic eating, that kind of pleasure eating centre. So the problem is that now when we've got so much food, um, tasty food around us and it is that fat uh, fat and carb combo... That doesn't happen for a lot of us, so we don't. We continue to then raise that set point up and up and up, Correct. which I think kind of ties into something we were talking about at the beginning of how that set point then rises. Yeah, right? yeah, correct. And then we get more and more comfortable, or our body gets more and more comfortable with maintaining that ever increasing weight. Yeah. So now we got to, so we got to pull out the palatability. We have got to pull out some of this the carbs and fat. Yeah, yeah. I might actually say that probably is actually the second second hero is low palatable diet. Before I, I know the listeners are probably still waiting to hear that low carb isn't um, or low fat's okay but just to go back to the low palatability that's probably the second hero is if you have simple whole unrefined foods um the the, the brain perf- 
will lower its set point um, and lose weight. And that's been shown in um, several experiments. If you provide people essentially a, a tasteless, lifeless, boring um, dish, well, actually it's a, a bland liquid drink or diet, um, overweight people have dropped extraordinary amounts of weight, yet they were um, had no appetite whatsoever. They were perfectly comfortable. They, some people literally lived off one to 200 calories a day, which is like a quarter of a, a normal nothing. meal sort of thing, the whole day for months on end, and they were unbothered, like they weren't thinking of food or anything. They felt comfortable, never hungry, lost all the weight. So that's one of the big things in the research they're finding is that palatability, that Christmas dinners and everything, um, all the, the junk food tends to yeah set the set point really high. And if you try and just eat, they call it the half Twinkie diet, if you just try and eat half the amount of rubbish, the brain doesn't like that. That still wants 100% rubbish. But if you switch to... Um, you know, I don't always like the word clean eating, but that more whole, unprocessed, but also simple food. Like we can get a little bit lost um, in in today's day and age, to turning clean food into really spectacular, scrumptious food. If we still keep it really simple, maybe like you know your grandmother cooked um, a couple of generations ago, meat and a few veg. That's nice and bland. That the brain will turn down the set point and um, be comfortable with those more blander, low palatable foods. Okay, I've got a heap of questions. Yeah, this. sorry. We'll so, get to the cards no, and no, fat. No, no, no. We will and we will. <laughs> but this is really important because I can I can hear people already being like, I'd rather die than have to be eating boring, bland food. Yeah. And it's not necessarily what you're saying. I mean, it's got to be simple, whole foods. And so just to clarify what that looks like is that's often like plant-based foods like salad, vegetables, meats. And I like what you're saying there in the sense of, Often, especially in like the paleo diet world now, people can make these amazingly tasty, like sweet, like cacao avocado cake thing, mm. which is still hyper palatable, and that's probably not helping. That's that half Twinkie thing. Yeah, it's right? not dissimilar to what you'd buy from Seven Eleven in terms of palatability and taste and moorishness. In terms of how it speaks to your brain and your Correct. body, yeah. it's saying, "Oh, cash in on this. There's, yeah. there's good stuff yeah. around. We want to eat more of it." So. Um, it's sort of that stuff of, it's, and I think I've heard you say this before, of it's almost stuff that you're not even going to want to take photos of to stick on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, right? it's something to be embarrassed to put on Instagram. It's just like a bowl of porridge. There's no 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 exotic berries. Or, I mean, you can have like, you know, it's a spectrum as well. You can. It doesn't mean you, you can completely deprive yourself, but probably not go over the top with additives and dressings and sauces and... Keep you know, it fairly neutral. Yeah, maybe. and that'll be a dial down method of it. I think you can't necessarily go from that overnight, but just just be conscious of trying to move towards simpler flavors. Yeah, and 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 um, that thing about people preferring, you know, to gorge and die earlier or whatever. Um, one thing that people do find is their their palate does adjust. Like after a while, they get used to it and they don't mind the the, the you know more bland food. And then when they do have that really hyper palatable food, it's too much for them. So it's like your palate resets as well, and you can be fine and comfortable just with nuts, without roasting them and salt and you know dips on the side or whatever else. Yeah, you yeah. taste start to taste the sweetness of carrots and simple foods and fruit, etc. And you mean you often see that in kids, for instance, right? Like kids who are eating constant junk food based diets, that even just the sweetness of fruit isn't enough for them. Mm. And I tend to find I don't know about you, but two three weeks on a yeah, on a good yeah. low palatable kind of diet, like a whole foods diet, like you're describing they'll start to then not crave those sugars and that junk food and and that palate will start to shift so it's not too long a period of time to, no, to make that happen adjustment okay so 
moving to simple foods, whole foods. And I think that while that may be taking a little bit of conditioning for people to change their palate, change their understanding of what tasty food is, I think that that's often an important thing that, that needs to happen. While we're still craving that sweet, rich chocolate cakes, for instance, or the over-processed, flavoursome foods packed full of, packed full of flavour enhancers, etc., it's hard for our body to, I think, adjust to what's actually a more healthy diet. Absolutely. So um, if we go here at number two then is making sure we're dealing with that, you know, palatability, as, mm-hmm. you, as you say. So let's go back to the contentious issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. here at number three then is we want to be decreasing that combo of fat and Correct. carb. yes. Um, because that's kind of what makes it palatable. So a lot of people familiar with the fact of low carb being beneficial for yes. um, weight loss. Uh, low fat used to be a thing that we were sort of talking about in the 80s. But now you're swinging back around and saying there's actually a place for either. Correct, yeah. So... When you look at the the research, obviously low carbohydrate or keto is really popular. And um, I'll just be really clear up front, like I'm in agreement that it can work really well for um, fat loss if you do keto. If you're doing keto and, and you lose fat and it works for you, great, keep it up. Um, my, what my message is, is it's, it's not any better than going low fat, That's which n- sounds... Not- yeah, which sounds totally controversial, Sorry, yeah. but there's not necessarily something magical about pulling out the carb because carbohydrates have been sort of spruced as evil. Yeah, and yes. it's like get that out, and that stops your, you know, your body wanting to put on fat. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so this has been investigated quite thoroughly in in really controlled research where they lock people up in rooms for weeks on end, and and they can monitor every morsel they eat, and and they can adjust. Okay, we'll give this group low carb. Okay, we'll give this group low fat. So, the the you know, the, the hierarchy, the, the most important thing with these diets is they have to be like lower calorie than what they're currently eating. That's still the end game is calories in, calories out. How does our, but we want our brain to want, want to do that in a sense. So if you match everything in, in a controlled setting and you feed one group low carb, one group low fat, essentially um, they lose exact amount of weight. They both lose a good amount of fat um, all their you know, metabolic health, whether it's insulin, blood pressure, by and large, um, responds exactly the same. So it's the lack of calories. And I should also mention, in those studies, they also match the protein. So I think a lot of the benefits of low carb is because they're low calorie, but because you're going keto, you're often having more steak and stuff. Low calorie, but you're also eating plenty of protein. That's sort of, you know, hero number one there. Um, and you've removed the fat, oh, sorry, the carbohydrates, that's here at number two, you're making it less palatable. Because you don't have that combo of yeah, fat and carb. Yeah, and that's that's where the magic sort of is. You just tend to eat less calories and lose weight. On the flip side, you know, in the 1980s, it was all low fat. That was popular. And if you test those diets again today, head to head, you lose just as much weight on a low fat diet. You keep the fat low, but still have maybe oats and, you know, dare I say, white potatoes and sweet potatoes and you know, even bread, um, whole meals, um, brown rice, brown bread, some pasta, but without the cabanara, without the sauces, without the butter, um, without the cream, without the cheese or, you know, lower fat or reduced amounts. If you have plenty of protein, adequate carbohydrates, avoid the fat, um, you'll lose, typically you'll lose a lot of weight as well, just as much as um, low-carb diets. So, yeah, when we looked at the research, you can't split them. So, um Really, I mean, for me, that's great because it gives a complete another option to people. Like, I think one of the challenges with low carb is if you're, say, a vegetarian 
it's really hard. Um, people get pretty tired of eggs. You can only do them so many ways, um, boiled and fried and stewed and everything. Um, that's what people usually eat for breakfast. And it's, but you know, if you're vegetarian or vegan, it's hard to get your, um, go keto in that mode because you probably need to rely on legumes and grains to, to get your. You're naturally eating a higher carbohydrate. Yeah, yeah. Diet, so that's a really that opens up a whole area for some people that can have. Um, low fat so it might mean you have to cut back on the butter which has become sort of popular and coconut oil is great but you can overdo that as well or avocado even those things that's the ones you'd have to limit on that group whereas the the low carb obviously you can have some more of that but less of the obviously the grains and the starches and etc so just recapping with that is that i mean i think back in the 80s it was we were pointing the finger at fat and yeah, saying fat's yeah. evil. And then now we're pointing the finger at carbohydrate and saying carbohydrate's evil. Essentially what you're saying is that neither of them are evil as such. They're, it's just an excess of anything is going to be a problem, even as you're saying there, an excess of good things can be Correct. a problem always. And it the potentially where we get into a bit of a bind is that when we have fats and carbohydrates together in the meals that creates that increase in palatability triggers to our brain and our brain says yes let's get some more of that yeah so pull one or the other out of that yeah yeah but i think because when you mentioned butter it made me think oh, a lot of people are very a big fan of you know butter and saturated fats now and showing that there's some benefits for it and that's i think the swing of the pendulum because we used to say oh they're evil get them out of the diet so you're not saying that in a low-fat diet it's we're not trying to go oh they're bad, get them out. It's no. just like restrict the calories and the ma- we've got to get enough protein so we're either going to restrict the calories coming from the fat yeah, yeah. or coming from the carbs. Basically, yeah, something's got to give um, and it's mostly up to the person which one you, can you do best without. Can you do better without uh, as much fat in your diet or can you do better, you know, does your lifestyle best suit you if you go low carb or your family, you've got kids and stuff like you know, not many people want to cook three different meals for five different people because I'm doing low carb and they want to eat their pasta or whatever. So really it comes down to um, what the person's going to stick to over the long term. And that's, you know, that's all these studies have looked at when they apply this to, what we, you know, free living people. Like if I was assigned a diet and you're assigned a diet and um, everyone else in my neighbourhood, the, the common denominator for success is not that person got the low carb diet. The common denominator is that person wanted to lose weight, they adjusted their lifestyle, they got the food and they followed it. Um, it wasn't so much what they were doing out of the low carb and low fat when they applied these um, diets to the real world. There's massive variability in weight loss between the, um, even in the same group. As I said, they both work really well if you do it. So my advice is you find which one you prefer to do. If you like savory, maybe the low carb. If you, if you like a bit more carbohydrates, then Go, go low fat, it's up to you. Which is the thing I always say is that the diet that's going to work, and so I guess like you know, it's like every single time the diet that will work is the diet someone can stick to. Yeah. So there's no point having some idealistic diet if I'm not going to be able to stick to it. So I like that about saying, well, what works for your lifestyle? At the end of the day, we're trying to decrease calorie consumption and collectively, as we're in the middle of talking, allow the body to decrease the set point so then that body is happy to consume less and shed those kilos yeah awesome now 
I've got to say, because everyone's going to be thinking this, if we're saying, look, carbohydrate could be okay, what about evil sugar? Like, sugar's getting a lot of bad press these days. Like, yeah, hasn't yeah. that been shown to put on weight and doesn't that affect? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So um, this is controversial, but short answer is no, not really. It's it's um, head-to-head. It's no more problematic than any other sort of um, nutrient energy. So now, again, let me be clear. This does not mean that I think we should all go out and um, buy 24 cans of soft drink from the supermarket and crack one all the time um, and have drinks and whatever, or heaps of lollies. But looking at the science, um, sugar is, you know, it's quite benign if it's um, in a, a, a low-calorie setting. So they've done, um, you know, even the glycemic load and the glycemic index, again, and I don't want to confuse weight loss with good health as well. Like if we're looking at weight, sugar... Um, doesn't seem to be an issue, and uh, by and large, and this might rile up people, but let me just take a step back. So we've been they've been following um, food consumption over the years, you know, since the 1900s, uh, including in Australia. And one of the, the what they call the paradoxes these days is we're actually eating less sugar than we once were, say, 20 years ago, particularly in Australia. Yet our obesity rates have continued to increase. So, and in the United States and in China, the same thing they find. There's been a, a, a tail away, a, a drop off of sugar um, consumption, which, you know, is, is fine. It's, it's actually good. I'm not saying, again, to be clear, I'm not saying we should go out and consume sugar. But to, my concern is if we just blame sugar, like um, that's the, the sole cause of the problem. I'm sure there's plenty of people who, who don't eat sugar that are still overweight. Sugar, um, it still gets metabolized the same way. Um, my concern is sugar is processed in removing the fiber, you're removing the, the um, vitamins and minerals, which is really important. But as actual molecule, sucrose, which is glucose and fructose, um, it hasn't been shown in any studies to be this evil um, fattening agent that um, some people um, point the finger at. But as I said, <laughs> I can't reinforce enough that it's not a free pass for sugar, but I don't think that um, that is the, the sole reason and then um, obviously fruits and vegetables contain natural sugars um, with plenty of fiber. So you can enjoy that in, um, you know, in, in liberal portions. Mm, because those studies that are showing that, that sugar consumption as kind of, while it might've gone down or leveled in some ways and our carbohydrate level, our carbohydrate consumption has actually kind of decreased in some ways, but yet it's not proportional to the epidemic of obesity. Yes. And so it's not that we can... This The data isn't showing that that's clearly the evil victim and the smoking gun. Yeah. And you said that before really nicely, is that there is no evil... Sorry, evil villain. You know, yeah, it's like... Yeah. It's not carb. It's not fat. It's not necessarily sugar. It's it's a poor diet collectively, I guess. Yeah, it's say. a combination. And they, they, they call it the, the bliss points. Like, it's the sort of perfect storm of... The, the concentrated sugars, the concentrated fats, and just on that food consumption, the biggest thing that's changed over the past couple of decades is our added fats and oils have gone up exponentially. So I think maybe sometimes sugar, it gets confused with processed foods like donuts. Are, you know, we're probably eating more donuts than ever in croissants, and that's got a lot of fat as well as sugar. But anyway, it's that perfect storm of um, refined sugar um, because it's got calories, um, it's got um, and processed oils because they're calorie dense. And that's that um, combination plus all the flavors and things that, you know, it's almost like a drug-like effect in your brain. Your brain loves it and wants to cash in on it. So as I tease everything out and just say it's sugar and that's it, um, I think it's very simplistic. And that's what the obesity researchers are arguing. Not that that's, as I said, a a free pass for sugar, but 
um, they're concerned if that's all we focus on, we're not going to solve this problem that's really obviously uh, going in epidemic proportions at the moment. Yeah, certainly. So it's the combination of all of it being there and, you know, as you're saying about the fats being in the food and it's like, yeah, fats are okay, but when you're adding that into like your croissant example or the donuts, it's the, it's again coming to that combo back. It's just coming back to that combo. I guess the only thing I was thinking as you were talking about the sugar is that the palatability aspect. Yeah, like if we're yeah. adding in sugar, it does make us want to consume more of that food. Yeah, well. exactly. Um, and you know, typically sugar like the it's has this bad rap. Like you have your McDonald's or your fast food, and the the, the soft drink on top. I think. It's just you're eating a lot of calories there. <laughs> like that's going to blow anybody's budget out. Probably I wouldn't. We can't. I can't say he can just single out the the soft drink if that makes sense. Again, none of it's a probably an ideal food choice, but it's very narrow in in um, its attack on a certain element. Yeah, and I, I'm just thinking of. I think it's Michael Pollan uh, who said this about eat good food, not too much. Yeah, yeah, you mostly know, plants. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mo- most of what you're sort of talking about here is circling back to that palatability. It's that combo. It's like we're eating too much because the food's too tasty. It's too tasty to our brain because it's got that combination. So we've got to pull out that combination. So either go low fat or go low carb and eat good, clean, whole foods Yeah, and not too much of it. And then we're going to be able to consume less and our brain's not going to fight us against that. Yep, perfect summary. So, yeah, there's no one does it say you should have more sugar, but as I said, it's just um, not focusing just on that. There's plenty of other variables that you just discussed. Cool. And I guess while we're just sort of wrapping the diet part there, then making sure you get enough protein in there. Correct, yeah. Okay, cool. So that gives us those three heroes to the set point. Are there any other diet elements that are important for us to be considering to make a successful diet to help us reduce that set point? and successfully lose weight and keep it off in the long term. Yeah, I've got one real fascinating one else to discuss. And this, um, I'll just quickly say, like, you know, a lot of the diet books you read usually have some sort of pitch, like um, low-carb or low-fat or paleo or vegetarianism. Um, and we sort of cover that. That's what I'm trying to get at. There's these overarching um, principles that are hopefully just illustrate the, the protein. It's a low palatability. It's restricting one or the other. Um, but ultimately, one of these things which I'm sure the listeners have found, they've gone paleo and great, they've lost the weight for a while, but as we said, that, that then the weight starts to creep back on because the brain's fighting back. So there's one real curious thing that um, I'm really excited about that may um, offset all this and might sound a bit counterintuitive once I say it is um, basically to diet for a short period, then stop dieting and then repeat, basically. So... The, the rationale here is um, as soon as you start dieting down, going hyper low calorie or hypocaloric, as I said, the brain starts defending that. Hopefully those few things we just mentioned will reduce that. But there, there's always going to be some pushback from the brain. So what um, researchers have found is um, how about we actually pause and allow the person to eat a normal volume of food again for a short period to almost tell the brain that, hey, things are okay, you can not get um, carried away with this weight loss in terms of getting alarmed that it's um, deviating from your set point. The brain sort of calms down and then you repeat that process, this cycle of... So in the research, it's two weeks of dieting. They call it intermittent dieting, which we can't get confused with intermittent fasting, which we can get Mm. into shortly. But intermittent dieting, so you diet, you, you, you cut the calories for two weeks, you lose some weight and then you actually go back to 
when I say normal eating, you, you increase your calories back to where you were when your weight was stable, but perhaps overweight. So the brain sort of resets itself, feels comfortable, and then you dive back in for another two weeks. And you basically continue doing this until you lose weight. So what they've found uh, in the studies or study, which is done in Australia, um, this Matador study, they call it, which is they, they got one group of patients uh, or subjects or volunteers to go on a straight normal diet, like let's just cut your food intake by one third, eat you know, 66% of your normal calorie intake. They, they lost weight um, reasonably well. That They got the other group to do the same thing, but over um, two-week cycle. So two weeks, you'd cut 66%, then next two weeks, you're back to normal. And they both dieted for the same period of time. Obviously, the, the diet break group uh, dieted for a longer overall because they punctuated with their diet breaks. But at the end of the, the, the study, they found those on the diet breaks lost far more weight than those on a continuous diet um, pro- the usual sort of diet format. Wow, and and probably having a little bit, like a lot easier to stick to. Like you don't get that same psychological fatigue or diet fatigue of, yeah. you know, four weeks in, six weeks in, you want to fall off the wagon. Yeah, so they, um, and what they, they, when they looked at the studies, they, they lost more weight on the weeks they were dieting. And when the weeks they weren't dieting, they didn't put on any weight. So they, they might go from, say, 78 kilos to 76 over the diet period, and they stay at 76 for two weeks. Next week, that or the next two weeks they drop into it, uh, they go down to 74 and stay at 74 for those plateau weeks, whereas the other group might have gone from 76 to 75.5 to 75.2. They just had that slow loss of weight. So by the end, there was you know a big difference between the groups. So um, it was one, to give them a psychological break, but also to give their subconscious essentially a break from feeling like it's going to starvation mode. Now let's talk about that a little bit because that's that's you kind of help the set point readjust when you're doing these yeah. diet breaks, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, it's sort of like walking it down the stairs ever so slowly, so it feels comfortable with this um, changing set point. So, how do I, you know what's the sort of the evidence for this? So, what they did, the scientists looked at their resting energy expenditure or their basal metabolic rate. So, as I mentioned earlier, when you diet, your basal metabolic rate starts dropping away, uh, dropping off. But what they found was with the people who went on the diet breaks is they didn't suffer much of a, a, a loss to their metabolic rate. They lost, it dropped a little bit, but nowhere near as much as the um, group on a constant diet. Now, I just want to finish off with they, they um, followed these people up. So, okay, they finished their dieting period. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the, the, the diet breaks group was significantly lighter or lost more weight. And for the next six weeks, they said just, okay, maintain your energy balance. So just um, they gave them all the food and everything to try and hold their weight. And we know, you know, that, that you start putting weight back on um, sooner or later or once a diet's over. But they followed them up six weeks later and they were they had their weight hadn't changed. So they, they maintained that weight, which is what I was saying. We're after that long-term maintenance, whereas... The other group started putting on a couple extra kilos. And then they said, okay, we'll catch up with you in 12 months' time. No, no other instructions. And they checked in with them 12 months' time. And those that went on the diet break still were much lighter than when they started, whereas the other group um, suffered the usual fate of these um, yo-yo diets is they lost the weight, but 12 months later they were back to where they started. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. by actually dieting less, in a sense, because you're doing two weeks on, then yeah, two weeks off, yeah you get a better result and you keep that weight off 
as opposed to uh, like a short hard sprint someone might lose their weight and then they're likely to rebound off and you're saying it's not necessarily because you know some people might go oh yeah but I get in the zone and my dieting and I'm fine to keep staying on it it actually creates changes within our body that gets our body defending that set point when we're dieting yes. where when you do it as a diet break it allows the body to kind of adjust to that gradual reduction in weight and then it goes okay i'm comfortable as we start to move to those couple kilos less yeah and i'm comfortable as we start to move to a couple kilos less again so in this study 12 months later their set point is keeping them at that lower weight correct yeah it's fascinating isn't it that they they, they maintain that so i think that the, the challenge is you know as you know, users of the diet, if you want to call that, like people listening, you might, particularly in the first stages, you want to get into it, you have lost two kilos, and then it's, oh, what, you mean not to diet now? Uh, I just want to capitalise on this momentum, but as I said, it's that law of diminishing returns. The the longer you push the this process, the less uh, weight you're going to lose. So it's having that confidence, you know, as a dieter to, to know that let's have a break and essentially, yeah, like it's a, it's a sprint, it's a series of sprints, um, next in two weeks' time, I'm going to hit it again, and I'm going to lose much more weight um, in my next bout. But this time, this these two weeks where I'm not dieting, I have to have the expectation I'm not going to lose weight. Having said that, we've tried it on people, and they've they have lost weight even during the diet breaks, even though they were eating, you know, some hyperpalatable foods occasionally because um, socially and so forth. So, yeah. And I wanted to ask about that. The diet break looks like you've mentioned that you might get your portions returning back to, you know, you're going to start to yeah. probably consume maybe what you were eating before. So are you still trying to focus on keeping it low carb or low fat, but you maybe eat a little bit more of it? Or are you still trying to focus on keeping it with the good amounts of protein or keeping the palatability out of it? Or Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. And that's where I think confusion comes in. And again, I think through sort of culture, there, there's this um, views of cheating and, you know, um, sort of like blowouts and binges after the if dieting or, or, or flexibility. It's not so much it's a license to go nuts. Go nuts. Yeah. It's more like, hey, you don't have to put so much pressure on yourself and make, uh, go through this difficult phase. It's be You can be a bit more liberal. And, and in the research, they tried to create energy balance during the, the, the diet period, meaning um, don't overdo it, but you don't have to starve yourself. So it wasn't like they all went out and over-consumed all these foods and had these hyper-palatable foods. Um, but, you know, it's also, I think, a bit of a psychological break. If you have a bit of an indiscretion here and there, that's probably not going to be an issue as long as you're not putting on weight. Um, but basically just eating a little bit more to your to your comfort levels um, without overdoing it, but you're not having to exert a lot of will, any willpower really to to um, get through that two-week period. So relax those restrictions a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah, sometimes you may completely deviate and have something that's you know, that are hyper palatable, as you say. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. And then you do that for two weeks and then you get back on your diet, whether that's your low fat or your low carb and the reduced calorie consumption, and you'll have some wins over those two weeks. And you mentioned the important aspect of there, which uh, we'll be talking about in another uh, podcast about the making sure you're measuring yourself and keeping those metrics. Because in that two week break, if you do start to get carried away with the diet, you want to still be making sure you're measuring your waist circumference. You want to be still looking at your weight still working with a practitioner that could be looking at muscle mass, et cetera, and you'll start to see if you've maybe gone a little bit too far the other way. Yeah, yeah. As I break. said, but don't 
don't beat yourself up if you haven't lost any weight during that period. That's not you the might, goal. Yeah. Just so long as you're not sort of putting loads back on. Yeah. But you might just yeah. stay, stay idle. That's okay. Because yeah. what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your set point to catch up. Exactly. And just to say, as I mentioned, it sounds counterintuitive, but all the, the research showed that nobody put on weight during that period. And, and the, the, the um, times we've used it in our clinic, uh, the people haven't put on any weight. They've actually lost a little bit here and there. But as I said, it's more your expectations because you're gung-ho, you want to lose weight, and now it's like, hey, uh, I don't need, I'm, I'm advised not to right now. But that's, it's, we're playing the long game with the weight loss because we're, we want this to be not just a six-week um, crash diet. We want you to lower your set point and be able to keep this off in the future. Yeah, nice. And in saying that, people may, you may do the first, you might start the diet and do, you know, two, four, six weeks on the dieting aspect of it and then start your diet breaks after that. Yeah. It could be something to kind of get the ball rolling, gain some momentum, get some quick wins and then start over the long term, much longer than that, you might start to do, if you kept doing it, you're going to hurt your set point, you're going to rebound. Correct. So start doing your two weeks on, two weeks off and your diet breaks, which gets me to some of these studies that, we've seen around and let's not I guess mention names but certain TV shows where they do some <laughs> crash dieting and exercise and get people to lose massive amounts of weight what you're talking about here is part of that you know changing the set point is coming back to what you're saying about the balance sheet of the equation because when we're decreasing our energy intake uh, decreasing the amount of food we're consuming our body's either going to cry out for hunger Mm-hmm. And we're working with that with the actual profile of the foods in the diet that they're eating to help with some of that, to stop some of that, as you called it, the hedonic eating and the brain who just wants to eat it because it tastes good. But the other thing it'll do is it'll restrict its energy expenditure. It'll affect its metabolic rate. And that's what we've seen from some of these long-term follow-up studies in these crash diets when people do it is that what happens is that those people start to affect their energy expenditure and then that's why they rebound weight, isn't it? Do you want to just sort of walk us through that? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, um, so with those uh, those reality TV game shows, they obviously, you know, trying to lose as much weight as possible, and they they go to the extreme. So, a couple of things: these people are typically morbidly obese, so they're you know a long way from their ideal weight, and they do lose tremendous amounts of weight in a small period of time, basically through semi starvation and uh, extraordinary amounts of activity. So what's more concerning was when they looked at their basal metabolic rates, they were fortunate enough to measure them during the contest and before, during the contest. And six years later, as I said, these people are almost as heavy as they were before they started. But the striking thing was their basal metabolic rate was markedly lower than what it was before they started. Essentially, 700 calories a day lower than when they started. So that's, that's a whole reasonable meal that they have to essentially skip now just to maintain their, you know, literally obese, you know, weight they're at now. So basal metabolic rate is that amount of energy that we can burn in the background. Yeah, it's just, our, just yeah. Um, yeah, basically if you did not get out of bed for the day, how much food would you need to consume to not lose any weight? So it's just your housekeeping that doesn't happen. You know, your brain's constantly functioning, your liver's doing this and your kidney's doing that. That all needs energy and calories. Um, and that actually makes up 70% of how much energy we burn during the day. So um, it's really important to maintain that basal metabolic rate because it's essentially easy easy burn for you of all these calories you're consuming. So these people, as I said, 700 calories, they're um, fewer, they're burning just at rest. So no wonder they um, put all the weight back on because they, they push their system just 
you know, far too hard. Too hard, too quick. Yeah, yeah. And the body, it's for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The body just fought back and put the weight on, unfortunately. I don't think that the shows would be very successful if that had a, a diet break period. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be as fun. And but it's not even just those shows that like we're not having a go at that show as such. Yeah. It's just that that I think is a representation of when some people go out really hard. Like they'll join the gym, do this hardcore crash diet, and they'll be getting great results for eight weeks, and then they maybe hit their goal. Yeah, or, yeah, absolutely. But then what you're saying is that that leaves their body spending less energy at the at the end of that which is often why they rebound weight gain. So even if you can fight off the cravings and you can stick to your diet and you can consume less calories, the body will then compensate by dropping your energy expenditure out. When you finish the diet, then the body starts to be able to, it can't burn energy as effectively. So what diet you start to move on to, you start to put on weight again. And by doing that, you haven't shifted your set point down. So the set point is still sitting at where it was before the diet. So the body with low metabolic rate and it's still a set point saying you should be heavier, of course, it's naturally going to shift you back to the weight that you were at the beginning. Yeah, so hopefully those those uh, four or so heroes we discussed earlier, um, you can apply those and still, yeah, as, a, as I said, or as I will say, that um, not saying that exercise is not healthy and important and it's great to go to the gym and I do it and I eat well, um, but, yeah, you want more than just that crash diet. If you can... You know, lose weight. Some people do lose weight rapidly and keep it off. Everybody's different in their their um, responses, but yeah, you really ideally want, as I said, that end game that the body is actually now comfortable at that set point, so you don't return to where you was. Nice. And uh, I mean, your protein aspect of the diet helps with that, right? Because the protein maintains your muscle mass. And your muscle mass has a relationship with your metabolic rate. Yeah, yeah. And when these people do crash dietings, that you'll see that they lose a lot of muscle um, pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah, and yeah. so you might be looking at the scales going, oh, I'm having a win because I'm dropping a couple of kilos. Some of that may have been your muscle. Now with that less muscle, you're not going to be able to burn off energy as effectively. So when you stop the diet or even as you continue to diet, you can't burn energy, so you start to put it back on. Yeah. And... I guess coming back to how we started with this is that that's why those diet breaks are so important because it lets the set point catch up with where you are and then it's comfortable that you're weighing a couple kilos less now and then because of that it doesn't start to say whoa we got to drop out energy expenditure let's drop our metabolic rate to compensate because we're getting less calories coming in absolutely so yeah perfectly said and as I said it just means for the user, you just have to be a bit patient and be, you know, it's going to take maybe twice as long as you'd hoped, but it's going to it's going to stick. It's going to hold much better and you're going to be better for the long run. Long run, unfortunately, you know, it's human nature. We all want quick fixes. So just be comfortable with the, the journey and do it sensibly. Um, you, you, you should get some good wins on those weeks you do diet, but, you know, there's going to be some stagnation, but that's there's, uh, there's an advantage to that over the long term. It's that good old saying that I'm pretty sure I see on lots of social media around this topic was it, it's all about progression, not perfection. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah It's yeah. like we don't want to necessarily get there in six weeks and then rebound back. We want to keep – it might take you 10 weeks to get there, for instance, but then you're going to keep it off for the next couple of years and yeah, hopefully yeah. forever. Yeah, I think one of my favourite quotes is that um, uh, consistent imperfection. So you're doing things good all the time, not perfect, and that's why there is no – magic diet that you can't sort of keto your way um through it like you low carb is great but you're better off being able to do low carb 
you know, close to, you know, ideal as possible on a regular basis and then having the break with the, um, the diet breaks to allow that adaptation. So, yeah, that um, consistent imperfection. I like it. I like it. And magic diet, like we've certainly, if I can get you for some more time on the podcast, I'd love to go through the difference between diets and you talked about intermittent fasting before and kind of do a bit of a, you know, I guess a bit of a comparison. There's a lot of different fad diets out there these days. Um, so I'd love to talk about that sometime if you've got time. But um, I guess before we just sort of wrap it up, I mean, you mentioned exercise and I know that there is a lot of research around this. Does exercise um, or ex- a lot of research around exercise in general for benefiting for weight loss and where does it fit into the set point? Um, yeah, it's a great question um, because people have probably found themselves like, Sometimes you can do a, 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 an exercise campaign and frustratingly, you're no lighter. Um, you're fitter, which is great. Again, bonus for exercise. I think everyone should exercise. But there are a few nuances to exercise. So, um, yes, this exercise can does seem to help lower the set point. Uh, one of the big caveats is you have to do it enough and regularly to get the benefits, unfortunately. Or fortunately, you got to find something you enjoy, do it you know, like half an hour or ideally an hour a day. And what's been shown is um, basically if you do enough exercise, it'll affect the brain to be able... The problem is with exercise, as you probably know, if you've ever done a session, um, you feel great afterwards and then maybe half an hour, hour later, you can be really ravenous. So you can, with the calories in, calories out equation, you can basically um, compensate, unconsciously compensate for that energy of extra energy of burnt. You tend to eat that back. However, if you do enough exercise regularly and consistently, you tend to sort of break that um, that equation, if that makes sense. So you're burning more than you're, you're burning. Yeah, it. you're not. You won't um, uh, eat a, a enough to um, make up that shortfall. And over the time, you'll have that um, benefit. And also, in the brain, the brain actually feels more satisfied with food. Um, the, the message is coming to the brain to say, "I've got enough food in my stomach," or my fat cells are at a certain level. Exercise seems to help um, tell the brain that, that it's going to be okay with the lower set point. Awesome. So that, that helps put that in perspective really well. So you're saying around about 30 to 60 minutes a day, which may seem like, I mean, I can think of some people might be freaking out at that idea already. So achievable uh, limits that are going to hit that sort of sweet spot, would you say, f- you know, 45 minutes, four times a week kind of thing of some some level of intensity, moderate level of intensity yeah, is going to be yeah, fine. Yeah. And I guess we can drop that time down if we go more towards a high-intensity style, like a high-intensity interval training or HIT style yeah, training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll just mention, like, I, I love HIT. I think it's great, but I have to be objective as well. It's it's not any better. Like the low-carb, low-fat, we can get, you know, um, into divisions and, and factions and groups here. HIT, high-interval training is really, really good. Um, but if you look at the data, you don't lose any more fat than if you do continuous aerobic activity. So as I said, I like it for time constraints, like 20 minutes of interval training is equivalent for fat losses, say 45 minutes of aerobic, but it's not any better. So again, it's, it really comes down to unfortunately or fortunately, whatever the person's going to do. If they, if they like you know, thrashing out in the bike, that's great. If they like to go for a brisk walk with their friends you know, through the, the suburbs or through the bush, that's great, that's great as well. Dance yeah. or whatever it might be. Absolutely. So again, find the diet that's going to work for you in the sense of whether it's low carb or low fat. It's kind of neutrally beneficial and find the exercise that you're going to enjoy and stick with. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, I can't write a, a, a 
book about that because it's not very sexy. No, is it? it's not. You kind of you've got to always find the magic thing, don't you? Yeah. But, but I mean, that's where the it tends to come through the balance of where we actually find that things work. So that is fantastic, Nathan. I think that's capturing everything to help reduce the set point, and that we need to reduce that set point because it's where it's it's where our body will keep our body weight at. As we reduce that set point down, then our body's comfortable with the fact that we've lost that weight. And you were saying about the four heroes that give us that. So you've given us some diet composition to help reduce the set point. You're saying hero number one, let's reduce, or sorry, not let's reduce, let's increase the protein, get around 30% of protein in your, in your weekly kind of meals and through your meal consumption. And hero number two is let's decrease that palatability. So let's separate carbohydrates and fats that go together and stimulate our brain to just think, yes, more, more, more. So let's work with good, clean, whole foods. And then that moves us to hero number three, which is going and choosing a low fat or a low carbohydrate diet. And then as we're dieting, making sure we don't diet for too long without having diet breaks. So be looking at two weeks on diet and two weeks off with a bit more of a relaxed dietary approach and then dieting um, back on again and and alternating those two weeks on and off that helps our set point start to be comfortable as we start to decrease that weight down and then we can win in the long long run perfect you've summarized all that research i've done (laughs) in about a minute there well done (laughs) (laughs) you've put it together really well for us so thank you so much for your time nathan i think that's really helped clarify and probably change people's minds completely about what we're trying to do when we're trying to lose weight it's not a short-term sprint it's about getting the weight down and keeping it down and that comes from getting the set point down and you've given us those four heroes to help us do that so thank you so much no worries i hope this is helpful for the listeners and they get some benefit and you know if the the scales are too high for them hopefully this helps bring it down and keep it down over the long term i'm sure it will thanks nathan thank you thanks for listening to your health guide any resources or links discussed in the episode can be found at metagenics.com.au. To help you continue on your health journey, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you found this episode useful, please rate and review us. If you have any questions about how this information could relate to your health condition, please go and speak to your natural healthcare practitioner who can provide you with specific advice for your health needs.